First John chapter four. Today, like I said to the kids, we're going to talk about love and the source of love. Now, several weeks ago, I pointed out that just about every movie, every song, every book ever written has a love story in it, right? So, so when we watch movies now, when we're watching shows, our kids like to point it out and they like to say it in the way that probably I said it, like, ah, oh, it's a love story. Everything's a love story, right? So they point it out every time that we're watching stuff now. Love is everywhere. The idea of love is everywhere. But as James mentioned last week, we're redefining love to mean whatever it is that we want it to mean. We're redefining it to mean whatever it is that makes you happy, that love is okay. And that's not how we need to define it. That's not how real love is defined at all. So in verse 19, just a little bit of review back there if you want to look at that. It says, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Verse 18 says, when we, are, when we love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So that is how we know if we are of the truth. If that's a question that you've ever asked, that's how you know. You're of the truth when you love not in word or talk, but in deed or truth. We talked a couple weeks ago also about how an evidence that someone is saved is that they genuinely and actively participate in Christian love. Loving the body, loving the brethren. This is a twofold test that we looked at. Belief in Jesus and love for one another. That's it. We so often hear this or feel this or think this thought. How do I know if I'm really saved or not? That's how you know. Do you really believe that Jesus is the son of God? And do you really show love for one another? Is that coming out of your life regularly? That's how you know. John has also told us that the only way to genuinely love somebody else is if you've been loved by Jesus first. Then we love others as a result of his love. Here's what I want us to wrap our minds around today. The source of love determines the definition of love. We're going to kind of reveal and unpack that a little bit more as we go. But think about this. The source of love determines the definition of love. If you and I are the source of love, if we, mankind, are the source of love, then we get to define it however we want. We get to categorize it however we want. We get to show it however we want. But if we're not the source of love, if indeed God is the source of love, then he gets to define it. Not me, not you, not our culture that is more and more confused, how would we define love? Well, for fun, let's listen to what some kids say about how to define, how to define love. Chrissy, age six, says, love is when you go out to eat and you give somebody most of your fries without making them give you theirs. Man, <laughs> I hope that's not the last amen we get this morning. May Ann, age four, says, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him home alone all day. Rebecca, age eight, says, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over to paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even after his hands got arthritis too. That's love, she said. Noel, age seven, says, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. 
That's funny. That's such a guy thing to do too. Seven-year-old Jessica gives us all some good advice about love when she says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. So some of what these kids had to say about love and what they think about love is actually really good, right? Being careful about using the L word in the right way is a good thing. We shouldn't just throw it around flippantly. Sacrificial love from grandpa to grandma with painting the toenails and stuff, that's really actually pretty godly and adorable to do. Maybe less adorable, but just as sacrificial as giving away your fries. It's not a stretch to say that every one of us is going to define love a little bit differently. Even if we all have the same overarching idea of love, we're all going to define love differently. And then if you move beyond people that call themselves Christians out into people who don't share a Christian worldview, the definitions of love are going to get even more diverse. In the world today, I'm afraid that love is understood more in selfish and sexual terms than in anything else. But John paints a much different picture of love in our verses today. Now you might be thinking, hold on a second, Rod. I know lots of people that aren't Christians that are really, that love really well, that do a good job of showing, showing love to others. Now, it's true. I'm not going to disagree with you in that. Every one of us shares the image of God. God, we were made in his image. And so to some degree, every one of us reveals glimpses of our creator in that way. The sad reality is that sometimes non-Christians are better at showing love to others than Christians are. And that ought not be the case. But no matter how sincere, how devoted a love is, if it fails to honor Jesus' commands to love the Lord your God with everything that's in you first, ultimately that love is going to fall short. It's going to be incomplete. So where do we go for the truth about love? Where do we go to find the source of love? As people of the word, we believe that scripture is our ultimate authority, so we go there. So we go to our text today to find the source of love in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Read that along with me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God, we think we know love. We think we know how to share it. We think we know how to identify it. And so often we're wrong. So often I am wrong. So my hope for myself and my hope for my friends that are listening this morning is that you would show us what real love is and what real love does. Teach us today in Jesus' name. And before we move on, I want us to remember that throughout this book, throughout all of 1 John, he's laying out these like tests, 
of our faith. Some of them are doctrinal tests. They're like belief. Some of them are moral tests, which is how we live, action. So doctrinal tests force us to ask questions like, do I really believe what John is saying here? Do I really believe that? Moral tests force us to ask the question, am I living like this? Am I living like John is describing here? And according to John, and I would say ultimately according to God, you can look at someone's belief and say, you don't know God. I think you can also look at someone's actions and say, you don't know God. In this passage, John's laying out a moral test for us to ask. And the test is a test of love. Now, John has already talked a lot about love in this book. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says that how you love indicates whether you are walking in the light or not. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, he says, how you love is an evidence that you are God's child or not. Are you walking in the light? Are you God's child? How you love shows and reveals a lot about those things. And here John just takes us straight to the source of love itself. God. God. And look at verse 7. John's tests ask whether we have been born of God and know God or not. So the test is, do you love one another? Again, this is not complicated. It's not easy. It's not easy to love somebody the way that they're supposed to be loved, the way that we are supposed to love them, whether they deserve it or not. It's not easy to love somebody that way. But it's not confusing. This is not a challenge to understand. Look back at verse 7 again. And someone tell me, I want you to respond back this morning, why John says we're supposed to love one another. From verse 7, why are we supposed to love one another? Because love is from God. For love is from God. Notice something that we don't find from the text here this morning. We don't find any talk about the worthiness of the person who's on the receiving end of our love. There's nothing here that has a list of things that they're supposed to do in order for you to love them first. What the other person can give you in return is also not something that John mentions. That is not a motivation for us to show love at all. We show love simply because love is from God. Christians love others because they have been born of God and they know Him and because love comes out of the person who has been loved by God. Let me say that more succinctly. Christians love others because love comes out of the person who has been loved by God. Notice also that John uses birth terms in this passage to draw our minds to the familial aspect of love. Parents, you have grown kids or your kids are still growing and you know this, that your kids develop your traits, right? They're going to turn out to be a lot like you, whether you like it or not, in the good ways and a lot of the bad ways too. It's a fact of life. It's a fact of history. Our kids in so many ways become just like us. If a person has been born of God, they are his child and guess what happens to them? They become more and more like their father. They inherit his traits. John points to one specifically today, love. 
Verse 8 goes on to say that if a person does not love others, then they don't really know God because God is love. So verse 7 said it in a positive way. Verse 8 goes from the negative approach and says if you don't know this kind of love, if you don't share this kind of love, you don't really know God because God is love. He's the source of it. His very nature is to love. Now I want to take just a moment to do a quick side word study. There's been a plethora of books written about love. And so you may have heard this already, fantastic. But there are really four different words for love in the Greek where we only have one in English. We just say love. So we generally use the word love for everything. So like, I love Crab Rangoon. I love it. I I, I love the song Dandelions by Five Iron Frenzy. It's like my favorite song. I also love my wife. But I hope it's obvious that I, I love my wife differently than I love Crab Rangoon. I've used the same word, but the love is very different. And I hope it's obvious. We love them. But in the Greek, the word for love here is not the friendly kind of love that you have for a friend. It's not a romantic kind of love that you have for a spouse. It isn't even the kind of love that you have for a family member. The word for love here in the Greek is agape love. And you've probably heard that word before. Agape love is a strong kind of love. It's unconditional. It's sacrificial. Agape love says, I value you more than you even know. And I'm unwilling to depart from you. I'm unwilling to... To not show love to you. That's agape love. So when we say God is love, when John says God is love, he's more than the love that we have for our favorite food or our favorite song, the love that we have for our friends and our family, even stronger than the love that we have for a spouse. The kind of love that is being talked about here is the kind of love that is perfectly effective and has eternal staying power. This is agape love. I also want to address kind of a a wrong thinking here, sort of a fallacy, if you will. When we say God is love, some people just kind of automatically jump to the inverse of that, which says love is God. So maybe you've heard that before. If God is love, then love is God and all love is good. But they don't always equal the same thing. This faulty conclusion has led our culture to worship love and not God. Now, we can say grass is green, but that doesn't mean that green is grass. Are you with me still here? Everything that's green is not grass. So the color green can't be defined by grass. Are you making the connection? All love is not God because our concept of love doesn't define God. God defines love. If you want to get right down to it, in the original language here, the definite article is before the word God. So literally, if you're reading this text, it literally says, the God is love. The emphasis is on the subject, who is God himself. Brothers and sisters, love does not define God. God defines love. Daniel Aiken points out John's simple logic here as we move forward. God is love, number one. 
Number two, those who have been born of God and know God are his children. Number three, God's children have God's nature. And so number four, God's children will therefore show love. This is a helpful and beautiful thing, I think, to define love in this way like John does because God's love never changes. God's definition of love, God's expression of love never changes. We never have to guess how we are to show love to others because it has been made crystal clear here in verses 9 and 10 how God has made his love shown to us. Now, I hope I'm not coming across as demanding or confrontational in this because I don't think John writes it that way. Just look back when he starts off this section. He says, beloved, beloved. That's a term of love. He's saying, dear ones, friends whom I care for deeply. Beloved is the same term that God uses in reference to Jesus at his baptism And at the transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son. So when John uses this word, he's not trying to be demanding or confrontational. He's saying these things in love, and I hope to communicate them the same way this morning. This is a term of endearment, and it's also just kind of a matter-of-fact thing. John has been really good so far to us in saying, this equals this. When you read through Paul's writings, Paul's got a lot of different levels and he goes through some swirls to get to his point and thank God for those things. They help form our doctrine. But John is just very matter of fact, here's what this means. If this is true of you, here's what this means in your life. Here's what this means in your relationship with God. I want to read verses 9 and 10 again together. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he's loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I'm a big proponent of using the words the Bible uses, even if they're sort of confusing and somewhat outdated. Maybe we don't hear them very often today. I'm still a fan of using them. And so I think we ought to become more familiar with words like justification, sanctification, incarnation, reconciliation. And then today, our big word for the day is propitiation. Propitiation has to do with satisfaction. Propitiation has to do with satisfaction. Stick with me on this. God's holy character demands that wrongdoing be punished. He wouldn't be holy and perfect and just and righteous if he let sin go. And so he has to punish sin in order to be God. He could not ignore it. Therefore, his righteous wrath will be poured out on every person who has sinned. Paul makes clear in Romans that sin equals death. That's the punishment for sin. Death. And every person has sinned. Therefore, sin equals death. Every person will die. God's wrath is satisfied with the punishment of sin. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Make sure you hear this. Look at what John says. But God sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Not that we loved him enough that he gave in and sent us a rescuer. Okay, your love for me has reached this level, so now you can be saved. That's not what happened. Simply because of his love for us. Simply because of his love for you, he sent his son to die in your place. God sent his own son to satisfy his own wrath. This, this is jarring to a lot of the way we think about God and love. But to be consistent with his holy character, God has to express wrath towards sin. The death of Christ satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of every believer, though. The death of Christ satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of every person who believes. Our only escape is through faith in Christ because he has already satisfied the wrath of God. On the cross, he drank every drop of the wrath of God for every person that believes. John has been very good to teach us to practice what we preach so far in this, in this book. Guess what? God is setting the example in this already. God is practicing what he preaches right here in 1 John. He's told us not to love in word or talk, but how? In deed and in action, in truth. And he did that very thing by sending Jesus Christ to the cross to face his own wrath that you and I deserved. The God of the Bible is a moving God. He is an acting God and he does what he says he's going to do. If Christ is your propitiation, you stand in him alone and you will never face the wrath of God's judgment on your sin because he has already endured all of it for you. Praise God. I I ran across an illustration this week about propitiation that I thought was extremely helpful. I want to share it with you. The story was told about a Midwestern town, not unlike ours, but where wildfire had started sweeping through. And we've seen that over in the West already this year. And we've seen, if you've watched any video from those fires, if you've heard any reports, you, you, can, you can see and hear how quickly this moves. Miles of land just consumed in minutes. And so it's an extremely dangerous situation. Well, this is a farming community in the Midwest, and so fields are on fire. Equipment is being burned. Barns are falling in. And there's one family in particular who was watching it unfold but realized pretty quickly they weren't going to be able to get away. And so their father had an idea. He went to the fireplace, to the the wood-burning stove, and he grabbed a brand that was in the fire, a hot piece of metal. And he went out to the fields around his house, And he began to burn the fields around his home. By the time the fire reached their their home, they had nowhere to go. And so they stood by the home in the, the charred, burnt ground. And as that fire came up around them, the ground was already burned. There was nothing there to fuel it, to satisfy it. And so the fire just went around it and they were safe. That is a beautiful picture of propitiation. The family was safe. Why? Because they were standing on ground that had already been burnt. The ground they were standing on was their propitiation. It had already endured the fire and thus could not be burned again. What does that mean for us? 
God the Father is satisfied with Jesus. And because you are, by faith, in Christ, God is satisfied with you too. Because you're already standing on burnt ground. You're already standing at the foot of the cross where God's wrath was already poured out. You don't face his wrath as his child any longer. You only face his love. Jesus, who was God in the flesh, showed agape love to you until his heart stopped beating. He took the blows of righteous wrath so that sinners could be reconciled back to God. Verse 8 tells us that God is love. Verses 9 through 10 tell us that Jesus proved that. And verses 11 through 12 tell us the effect that these things will then have on God's children, on his people. John says, we ought to love one another. If God so loved us, that's our motivation for loving other people. God's love for us. We saw what it meant on the cross. Sacrifice, service, humility. Brothers and sisters, that's how we're supposed to love one another. It would seem that some people in John's day didn't understand that. Maybe they were claiming to be disciples of Jesus, but they weren't living it out. Maybe they claimed to be a part of the church, but their lives did not bear fruit of repentance. Man, this is certainly true in churches today. If you are a Christian, you bear the name of Christ, and that's not a little thing. I heard a story of Alexander the Great. You've probably heard him. He was one of the greatest military generals, minds that ever lived. Conquered almost the entire known world at the time. It's reported that he was made aware of a soldier who also had the name Alexander. And this soldier treated people cruelly. He was involved with things that were far less than heroic. They were cowardly, questionable. The soldier was named in honor of Alexander the Great. And so when Alexander the Great heard about this guy, he called him to him. He needed to have a conversation with this guy. The soldier named Alexander stood before him. And with intensity, Alexander the Great looked in his eye and he said, Soldier, either change your name or change your conduct. No one has ever seen God. Do you know why John included this statement in here? Because it seems sort of strange. It seems a little bit out of place. If no one has ever seen God, where do you think they look to see God? His children, his people. If no one has ever seen God with their own eyes, where do they see him? In his family. They look at Christians. They look at the kinds of lives that we live to see God. What is your lifestyle saying to an unbelieving world? Does the way you live match up with the name that you bear? with the name that you profess. God, through his word, is bringing us before his face today and saying, either change your name or change your behavior. This is the moral test of Christianity. No one has ever stood before the sacrifice of Christ, understood it, believed it, and then gone back to live a habitual life of selfishness. It's impossible, according to scripture. John says that if you've done that, then you really don't know God. And no one can say, well, I'm the exception. Okay, maybe I failed the moral test, but don't worry. I'm still a Christian. Take my word for it. We can't because you're not. Your lifestyle proves 
otherwise. You cannot possess the divine life of Jesus in you and continue to be hateful and spiteful. The love of Christ roots those things out in his children. You can't say, well, I, I, I know I blow up at my job. I know I blow up in my home with my kids. That's just my personality. That's just who I am. No. If that's your attitude, please change your name. This is vital because when you see someone expressing this agape kind of love, you see God. You see God in their life when you see this kind of love coming out. No one has ever seen God, but you can see him in somebody's life. You can see the effects of the wind. You don't see the wind itself, but you see the effects of the wind. You can't see God. You better believe you can see the effect of God in a person's life. How the people of God love others reveals if God really abides in them or not. To close this morning, I want us to hear from a couple of commentators. These are in the notes. If you want to read along, this is from John Piper. He says, love is from God the way heat is from a fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. And fire gives heat because it is heat. So John's point is that in the new birth, this aspect of the divine nature becomes part of who you are. God's nature is love, and in the new birth, that nature becomes part of who you are. Brother, sister in Christ, if you claim his name, it will be seen. Your new nature will be lived out. You can love others as God loves you because he lives in you. His spirit has made you new in the new birth. I'm comfortable even going so far as to say this morning that his love will cause you to love others. It's not, it's not just an if, it's a will. You will love others sacrificially in servanthood and humbly because of God's love that's in you. Your life is one of the primary ways that the lost world sees and understands who God is. What are they seeing and understanding when they look at your life? Let me close with a short quote by John Stott. The unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another. Is that what is revealed in our hearts and in our lives as we walk through this life? The worship team is going to come back up and we're going to sing one more song and reflect on this this morning. And if you aren't sure how to answer that question, I'd encourage you, I'll be standing up here in the front, I'd encourage you to, to come down. Let's sit and talk and pray. You can pray right there in your seat. Ask God to forgive you. Repent of the ways that you have been bearing the name, but not the behavior of God. Lord, I'm so convicted by this this morning. My life doesn't always bear the name of Christ very well. My brothers and sisters, my friends listening can probably relate. But my heart, Lord, you know it. And you want to rule it even more. You want to conform it more to the image of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that mighty work in your people here today. It's not a work that we can muster up the strength to do. It's a work that you do because of your love for us. That while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. So we're thankful, Lord, 
for him dying as the propitiation for our sin. He has bore the wrath that I have earned, that I deserve. He has bore it on my behalf. And now you can be satisfied in me because of belief, because of trust. And so, Lord, I pray that my my friends today would trust you. And if they, they feel far from you, Lord, I pray that they would cry out and that you would help their unbelief this morning. In Christ's name I pray.